Well, hey, everybody. Good to see you. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark for the next couple of weeks. We actually won't make it out of chapter 1 this year um, because, believe it or not, on the 28th of November, just a couple weeks from today, it's Advent, which I love. I'm pumped. I love Advent. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite times of the year. Um, but then 2022 is hot on our heels here. Um, and we're going to pick back up Mark in 2022. Uh, unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't begin his gospel with a genealogy or with a birth narrative. Instead, he starts with the baptism of Jesus. That's how he introduces Jesus to us, this moment in which he claims his inheritance as the Messiah, the one who is going to make all things new. And so we read about that in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals And the angels attended him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. And now, Almighty God, we come looking for a word that can only come from you. To reach into those places of our hearts. That we would surrender to you. All of our hearts. We ask this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the opening of his short story, The Capital of the World, Ernest Hemingway describes Madrid, the city in which his story is set as a city full of boys named Paco. And each one of these boys named Paco has come to the city with a head full of dreams to be a famous matador or to do something to escape a life of tedium out in the country and just maybe to do something to earn the approval and love of a father, to make their father proud. In fact, he says Paco is such a common name and the burden of winning father's approval such a common theme that there is a local legend about a father who came to Madrid looking for his estranged son. And out of sheer desperation and heartbreak uh, out of her, over his own failures, this father searches out for his son and so he places an ad in the local newspaper with a simple message. Paco. Meet me at the Hotel Montana Tuesday evening, or Tuesday noon. All is forgiven, Papa. And so at the appointed time on Tuesday, Hemingway goes on to say that a squadron of police had to be called out to the Hotel Montana to disperse the crowd of 800 young men, all named Paco, all searching for love from their fathers. 
Anyway, he was kind of a master of his craft. And in just a few short lines, he captures something of that dynamic that so often exists between fathers and children. And maybe you're here this morning and you know that dynamic acutely. A lot of us carry around wounds from a father or mother and we kind of limp through life longing for that parent who who loves us to show approval. And no matter who that parent is, he or she always falls short. Sometimes those wounds become the defining feature of how we see ourselves and we spend a good chunk of our lives boxing shadows trying to win approval. Well, the reason that writers like Hemingway grab our hearts is because they speak to those unmet longings of the soul. A father who loves his children without condition, whose approval isn't based on achievement but is given freely and who goes to great lengths to show that love. Mark has already introduced us to Jesus in this first verse with two phrases. He is the Messiah and the Son of God. But before we know anything else about him, uh, before Jesus' ministry has started, before he calls the disciples, before he preaches to the crowds, before he tells stories about the kingdom of God, before he does any miracles, before the cross, before the resurrection, before anything Jesus does in ministry, we are told that he's given an identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. And the first thing that Mark tells us about Jesus, the way that he introduces us, isn't in what Jesus says, but what the Father says about him. Mark tells us how Jesus came to be baptized by John. Mike preached on that passage last week where John is introduced and uh, Mark, who's known for being short on words, still takes a little bit of time to describe what John is like. And he is uh, probably somebody that you wouldn't, you know, invite over to dinner a whole lot. Um, he's kind of an extreme person. We're told that he wears a, a coat of camel's hair with his big brown leather belt around his waist. And he's out there in the, de- in the, in the wilderness, in the desert, eating locusts and wild honey. Really, John, locusts? Could you be more weird? And occasionally he would come out to one of these caves in the wilderness to the people who were gathered around and he would preach them a message that goes like this, repent. And now, generally to repent means to change your mind, to you know, rethink your actions, rethink your life. The word in Greek is metanoia. It's to kind of recognize that the course of life you were on is mistaken. You need to reorient. You need to change course. And so John is out there in the countryside telling people, you are off course. Repent. Get your life right. And if they don't, for anyone who doesn't want to hear that message, he would warn them, if you don't do it, God is going to cut you down. He's going to bring fire down from heaven and a winnowing fork. I actually don't know what that is, but it doesn't sound good. And if you want to avoid all that, then you need to repent. You need to get your life together. You need to live right. Basic kind of turn or burn sermon. President of the seminary that I went to, uh, Craig Barnes, uh, used to call these bad dog sermons. It's where the preacher will stand up and wag his finger to the congregation and say, bad dog, what you did was bad. Don't bring that mess in here, bad dog. I was reminded of Craig's analogy the other day on Friday when I came home and I found this. (laughs) Let's just say that uh, Cooper needs to practice emotionally healthy spirituality. 
And Craig would kind of go on to say that, you know, he used to puzzle over why these kind of, you know, harsh, um, you know, messages of judgment would be so popular. Why bad dog preaching could actually kind of fill a room. Uh, and sometimes it's because, you know, the people who want to hear those sermons are convinced that the preacher is talking about somebody that they don't like. Get them, preacher. Tell them they're a bad dog. Those ones over there. Kind of makes them feel a little bit better about themselves. But he had a hunch that more often than not, the reason that this kind of judgmental religion is appealing is because deep down, we all think we need to be judged. We come sometimes like a congregation of little corgis with a big wet nose and ears pulled back, head low, standing in the mess that we made, and we think that we need to hear again, you're right, I'm a bad dog. Judgment's something that we get, like we understand it. And the thing is, Mark is telling us that, you know, people were out there eating this stuff up. He says that the whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. And so this isn't like a new thing. People are actually coming out in droves. They're falling all over themselves to confess their sins, to be baptized on the banks of the Jordan where John has kind of set up his shop. And they're hoping that he can kind of clean them up, straighten their lives out. Like so many young men named Paco, they come out here searching for redemption. They want to be washed clean. They want a new beginning, a fresh start. And so John is meeting this demand with a simple message. Get your lives in order because the judge is coming. And on one level, it's, it's hard, you know, in our cultural moments to get that. In another way, it's, it's not really hard to appreciate the message because it's something that we can get our heads around. It's a religion that says, come on, try harder. Get it right next time. And that's pretty much the way our whole lives are wired. That's why grace is so hard to get. Uh, my oldest is in middle school. And so recently the P word has come up quite a bit. Popularity. And the other day I asked him, you know, kind of like, what is your experience of being a middle schooler like? Uh, what's, what's a, what's, how's it been for you? And for a second, honestly, I couldn't tell if he was answering the question or describing the plot of The Hunger Games. <laughs> it's rough out there. Helps to be a sixth grader who shaves, I think. Um, you know, every day you're out there, you're kind of negotiating alliances, being judged, being evaluated by, by peers, by teachers. Uh, one of my neighbors, poor little thing, uh, she apparently didn't make the cut for the middle school drama club. I didn't even know you could get cut from drama club, but she didn't make it. And so you learned real quick, you know, what it's like to be judged. One of my pastor friends told me a story recently of going to visit somebody in the hospital who just given birth to a son. And it was the first time he'd been able to go into the hospital for a long time. And it was a happy occasion. So, you know, these are kind of moments as a pastor that get you all fired up. You're pretty happy to go in there. And as he walked in, he noticed immediately that the mother was crying. And so he kind of went into like, you know, crisis pastor mode. Um, his son was fine, perfectly healthy. It's just that he got an 8 out of 10 on the APGAR scale. And Dan Tucker, who's a pediatrician, told me, like, nobody gets a 10, right? It's this score that, you know, they use to measure a baby's health at birth. Uh, anything over 7 is great, but, you know, this son was a little jaundiced or something or whatever. And she was so bummed that he wasn't perfect. 
that she said to my friend, he's only been alive for one day and he's already got his first B minus. <laughs> and so it will be for the rest of his life. Soon it's going to be school and then it's going to be with coaches and then it'll be the SAT and trying to get into college and you're going to go to work then. You're going to be evaluated by employers. We are judged you know, by parents when we are kids. We are judged by our kids when we become parents, right? But in all of that judgment that goes around, the person who judges us most severely is the one who keeps turning up in the mirror each morning. And almost always that person has something to say, not good enough. So sure, We'll go ahead and head out with all of Judea and all of Jerusalem and we will get in line. So people would hear this, this call from John to repent and they'd say, you're right. And they'd also go out and get baptized, which is why he's called John the Baptist. Now, Mike pointed out last week that John's baptism is different from what we do in the church in one key way, in that John was baptizing these people in order to set them right. They would go out and they would hear John's sermons and they would say, okay, I'm going to do better. I'm going to get myself cleaned up. I'm going to turn it all around. And then to kind of symbolize this, they would get down into the water and have John wash them in the water as a symbolic way of kind of washing away all of their sins as though that's something that any of us have the power to do. And the big problem with that is that people have this nasty habit of keeping on sinning. And so they'd have to come back and get baptized again. They'd have to start over. They'd have to try really hard to get their lives right. And the treadmill would go on and on. Next time I'm going to get it right. Next time it's going to stick. And the thought behind this, you know, isn't all that complicated. And in some ways it does suit our cultural moment well. Um, I was in the Dancing Goat the other day and I saw a journal uh, sitting next to somebody uh, and the cover on it had a quote like this. In the end, we're all alone. No one is coming to save you. Get up. Signed, the universe. Apparently the universe is very cranky. But, you know, in a sense, this kind of religion appeals to, uh, you know, kind of something heroic in us. It says, get up, fix yourself, because it's you against the world. And if you succeed, it's because you get your stuff together and you win. And that's when we start getting all kind of freaky with control. And we think that if I can just kind of, you know, control the things that are going on in my own life, then they're going to get a little bit better. And if I can just control myself, then I can move on to controlling and getting everyone else's life better. How's that working out for anybody? Because even if you are able to get it all together, even if you are to kind of hold it together for just a moment, it doesn't last. Even if you arrange everything just so, it's like a house of cards and sooner or later something's going to slip. It turns out that's not going to make you right either. The one thing that will is when Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, shows up on the banks of the Jordan where people are doing everything they can, paddling around in a sea of good intentions to get themselves and their lives together and make things just right. And he decides to go ahead and step into the river. 
who John was talking about when he said, I'm not unworthy to untie this guy's sandals. The one whose judgment everyone is getting baptized in order to avoid has come to get baptized himself. And he didn't even bring a winnowing fork. I imagine this had John a little bit confused. And the thing I love about Mark's gospel is he doesn't even go into why Jesus is baptized. He simply states it as a fact. And when he does... The heavens are torn open, but it's not to rain down fire from the skies or to shake the mountains. It's for the Spirit to come down and for a voice of the Father to say, You are my Son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. And everything changed. To those who gathered, the only answer for getting right with God is if the Savior comes with them and identifies with them. And if they are in the water trying to have all their sins washed away, then he's going to have to go ahead and get in the water with them. And stepping into this water, the one who is without sin identifies with the futility of the human condition. And so Mark doesn't start his gospel with a baptism. I mean, he doesn't start with a, a birth narrative. He doesn't start with a genealogy. He starts with this baptism. He shows us what the incarnation is about. He shows us what it means for God to be with us. And it changes everything. This is how we are made right with God. Not because we tried harder, but because God came to be with us. Not because of all of our frantic doing that we finally get it right, but because of what God does. God's idea of coming to save us. The good news isn't that if we get our act together, if we do everything just right, then, you know, we put a little bit more effort into living right, then God's going to love us and we're going to win the Father's approval. No, the good news is that in Jesus, God has found us while we were out in the wilderness. What pleases God, what pleases God so much in Jesus is that he found us. He came to be with us. It's no small thing that the only two times where the Father speaks directly in Mark's gospel, he basically says the same thing. This is my son who I love. He adds in Mark 9, listen to him. Biblical scholar Jim Edwards says that everything in Mark's gospel hangs on this. And this is the thing that Mark wants us to see. The gospels agree that, you know, every single one of them, that this is a key moment in Jesus' life. But this is the very thing that Mark records in his gospel because it wants us to know that everything that Jesus is about to do, everything in his ministry, his whole life is surrounded by this awareness of his being loved by the Father, of his not needing to seek out the Father's approval. It is given to him. Being the beloved shapes everything that he is about to do. 
to do from this moment forward. And the moment that this ministry begins is when Jesus steps into the water to identify with those of us who are trying so hard to get our act together. You notice that Jesus isn't called the beloved until he steps into the water. And this identification is so total that, as N.T. Wright says, this baptism is a snapshot of the entire gospel. He writes, when the, loving, and when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, He says to us what He said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. It sometimes seems impossible, but it's true. God looks at us and says, You are my dear, dear child. I'm delighted with you. And then he finishes the thought with this. Try reading that sentence slowly with your own name at the start. Maybe some of you remember how much you wanted to hear those words from your dad. Maybe it was at school. Maybe it was at home. He wanted nothing more than to hear those words. I love you. I'm proud of you. I remember once during my sophomore year, my dad showed up to baseball practice, kind of, you know, during garbage time of the practice, we were just finishing up, and I was taking batting practice, and I was just lacing line drives out into right field, just one after the other, and so I came out of practice, kind of, you know, this goofy grin on my face, ear to ear, like, did you see that, dad? And what he said to me was, you sure didn't, can't hit it very deep, can you? I didn't even bother to mention to him that this was the first time I had ever decided to bat left-handed. Some of you had dads who were really great at coming up, putting an arm around you and saying, hey, I loved watching you play. I'm so proud of you. Some of you had fathers who were too broken with their own pain to come anywhere close to that. But Mark is saying, this is why Jesus' baptism matters to us. Because what God says to Jesus, He is saying to you and to me. That is what baptism is. We stand in these waters. His identity becomes ours. We are joined with Him, a beloved child of God. That is who you are. Beneath all of the masks that we put on, beneath all of the facades and all of the ways that we go about life trying to win approval, this is who you are. This is the moment you receive your identity when the Spirit comes And a good deal of the life of faith is actually trying to learning to believe that these words are spoken to you. And one of the things that Mark is saying in the way that he has kind of put his gospel together is that when we look at the whole life of Jesus, this is how we're supposed to understand our lives. Look at his life. Look at what he does. Practicing the way that Jesus is about kind of learning to hear and, and see and catch a vision of the kingdom and hear the voice of the kingdom. And to hear that these words are, are torn open and a whole new world is possible. And when this kind of gets into our bones, when that becomes the reality that we live in, then we're going to be ready like Jesus was to be sent out into the wilderness. 
It's the very next thing that happens in Mark's gospel. And it always kind of struck me as just a really strange thing. No, you know, Jesus doesn't like, you know, have a parade or this, this high moment of the Father's love. You know, he doesn't have a party afterwards. He doesn't start preaching to the crowds. He doesn't open up a Twitter account. He doesn't do anything. He goes straight into the desert. He's driven out there by the Spirit. And when Jesus goes out, it's because he's enacting Israel's drama of wandering through the wilderness for 40 years into the promised land. The road that he travels is riddled with temptation, is riddled with the possibility of failure. It's a place where everything is untamed and hostile out there with the wild beasts. Everything out to undermine the Father's love. And that's the place we get sent all the time place where judgment comes more readily off the tongue than grace. The place where distraction, where depletion, where exhaustion are the norm. It's the place where Jesus faces temptation and it'll be that way for us as well. But if we start out the journey believing that God is a disapproving parent, ready to kind of yell at us, waiting for us to get our acts together and ready to slam the door if we don't win approval, then when temptation comes, at the first sign of it, we're going to fail, we're going to crumble. But if you know that you're loved, then you're ready to take on the deserts of the world. You become fearless because that's what perfect love does. It drives out fear. And the most free people that I know are not the ones who are trying to save themselves. They're not the ones scurrying about trying to win the approval of others. They are the ones who know that they have learned how to listen to the voice of the Father. It's the only way that you'll know who you are. It's the only way that you will know who God is. Listen to the voice of the one who found you out in the wilderness and brought you home. Remember that in your baptism, you've been given an identity in Christ. He has marked us as people who are done trying to win the approval of others, done trying to prove our worth. When we get to that space, when we can be ready to receive the call that He has given us to live out the hope and justice and mercy and beauty and goodness of the kingdom. What Jesus is all about is listening to the Father's voice. And what the Father has said to Jesus, He has said to you. He said it in your baptism. He has said it every day since. He says it every time we gather and we come to this table. When we tell the story of the cup and the bread, we're telling a story of how God has come and rescued us in the wilderness. That on the night before He was betrayed, the people of of Israel. We are reminded of that story when they left their bondage, when they left their past behind, when they traveled through the waters of the Jordan into the land of the promise. And that same river where Jesus would be baptized generations later, they would be required to walk through those waters. We walk through those waters as well. We remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was telling us the story of how we would find freedom in this promise. Freedom from bondage to sin and death. Freedom to join with Him in His ministry of renewal as far as the curse is found. 
By participating in this meal, we tell the story of who God is and who we are. And so in this broken bread, in this poured out cup, we tell the story of God's grace for us. As we come to this table, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts to God. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God.